Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster. Hey everyone, welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. I'm your host, Gail Breton, and we talk about SEO building, niche websites, building authority sites, etc. So if you're interested, don't forget to subscribe. And in today, we are not going to be talking with Mark. We're going to get a guest for the first time in a very long time. And it was a really good idea to bring a guest that has been very popular on this show before. So today I am talking to Carl Roof who, in my opinion, was the best speaker last time we had Chiang Mai SEO going. Now it's going again. So it's like, I'm happy to hear you speaking again, Kyle. So welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm going to try to be the best speaker again if I can. So much pressure on your shoulders now. You know? It's like, now everyone's going to... That was like a poison gift, you know? Honestly, I think you're like uh, the, your storytelling ability on stage was really, really good. And I really enjoyed... Uh, I saw you both in Bali and in, uh, in Chiang Mai SEO. And it's like the ability of mixing like a story that has nothing to do with SEO together back with like a principle that's actually useful to run your website had the right mix of entertainment and value you know what I mean and I think it was really good actually so yeah I just wanted to say that and that's why I didn't want to speak anymore I was like I don't want to be against this guy anymore uh, so, so I broke you I broke you <laughs> exactly I'll be honest it's just I have a lot of stuff going on and I didn't have time to prepare to, yeah, your to excuses honest, are but, fine uh, but I know it's going your to be your excuses are fine you can say what you need to say Sure, I'm making stuff up now. Just to, it's fine. You you decide. You listen. You decide. Okay. Anyway, we're not here to talk about who's the better speaker today. We're here to talk about EAT. We're here to to talk about EAT. But the thing is, like, you've talked about EAT on the Niche Pursuits podcast, and I'm not the kind of guy that likes to do the same podcast twice. So my recommendation to the audience is: before you listen to this podcast. Actually, go and listen to a Niche Pursuit podcast because I'm going to build up on, to, on top of this. We're going to summarize the points. So if you really don't want to listen to it, don't. But it was a good episode, so I recommend you do. And we're going to actually just build up on top of that, ask follow-up questions, etc. So we can actually have two good podcast episodes for people who listen to most podcasts in SEO. And I think it's just going to be better for everyone. And I think there's like some interesting stuff in there. Before we actually jump into that, there's been a Yandex leaks lately. Have you checked any of that? Or did you learn anything about related to EAT or in general? Because we on the exclusive Karuf take on the Yandex take. <laughs> the exclusive. I think the buzz that's going around right now is on uh, a thing called uh, BM25. Have you seen anything like that? Okay. about that? No. So BM25 is document retrieval method. And it's very similar to TFIDF. It's basically TFIDF plus word count. It's TFIDF plus word count looking at the word count of the other things that you're comparing against. And it's all over the factors in that were released. It's kind of interesting because you have to think that Yandex was built as a as a, a Google clone. And I'm sure they got several engineers that worked at Google. And I saw a stat, and I don't know if this is true or not, but a stat, a stat that I saw was the results were about 70% the same between the yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, I saw that too as well. I saw that people were saying that it's closer, Google and Yandex are closer than Google and Bing, for example. I saw that. So that means if they're 70% off, you can see that maybe they're a few years behind or they're kind of slight, but if they're, that's pretty close. That's not too far away. And then so they're going in on this BM25 as how they're doing it. And at least in terms of their on page, what it is, it's a bag of words way to do it. So it doesn't care about grammar. It doesn't care about words, how close words are together. It's simply taking all the words and it's looking at term frequency from there, which is really a way that we attack Google now. Anyway, if that's really how it goes or it's close to what Google is doing, that's going to really upset a lot of people that talk about like Google's Google ability to understand text and stuff like that. Uh, how, how because it's, so it's not, because it's not, it's, it's what we thought it was. It's just that they're grabbing all the words and they're looking at the most common terms. The other thing I think that's really going to burn is the people that really hate the term LSI keywords that w- works perfectly in this type of a system. <laughs> it's really going to bum, uh, bum people out. I think out. it makes sense. If you look at like on-page tool, like your tool called the Page Optimizer Pro, like putting the right keywords in your content tends to really spike up the rankings quite often. Like if you take like a piece of content that was not optimized and you find relevant keywords to include in the piece of text, you include it, quite often you jump up in rankings. Like not every time, it's not like, depends on the competition, depends on a lot of things, but it's something that has consistently been observed and hasn't really been challenged in the SEO world for a while at this point. And so like that would make a lot of sense. And for the grammar, I can attest, I've ranked a lot of pages and I make so many grammar mistakes. I can attest that I don't think, it, I, I think it matters for conversions, etc. Like I still care about it, but it doesn't mean that's how the search engine works. And I think there's, there's two different levels, basically. Uh, that's 100% right. You need nice words on the page to convert and to get people to do what you want them to do. That's for sure. But that is, has nothing to do with rank. I'm really intrigued by the fact that Yandex, it's closer than I thought it was, if, if that stat is correct. 
if that's as correct and this is how they're doing it, then it gives us a lot of insight about how Google's doing it as well. I mean, it's going to be interesting. I think there's going to be a lot of analysis. I haven't done it at this point, so I just, I don't want to like talk. I just want to do the work, then I'll talk. Let's jump on the EAT stuff now. Thanks for that take, by the way. So in the Niche Pursuits podcast, one of the last advice you gave was everyone should go and read the Search Quality Evaluator Guideline. And you were like, well, that's if you want to learn SEO, you probably should go and do that. So I did that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you've seen my notes for the podcast. You've done it. I have like a lot of quotes about it, it. etc. And so like what I wanted to do is I wanted to go back to essentially a mix of like what Google says in the guidelines together with what you've talked about in the Niche Pursuits podcast and try to understand how this works in practice, basically, and maybe ask some follow-up questions to what you haven't asked. And one thing that was interesting as well is I think at the time at which you recorded the Niche Pursuits version, they didn't yet add experience, which uh, they just added. Now it's EAT. It's not EAT. And it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's like, where, where are we going to end? You know, I went to chat GPT and I said, what can, what kind of world can I make with EEAT to try to see where it's going? Try to get the anagram or something, but didn't come up with anything. Anyway, let's talk about experience. And the experience one is, I think, one that's going to be interesting for affiliates. From the words of Google in the guidelines, it says, consider the extent to which the content creator has the necessary first-hand or life experience for the topic. Many types of pages are trustworthy or achieve their purpose well when created by people with a wealth of professional experience. For example, which would you trust? A product review from someone who has personally used the product or a review by someone who has not. And this, I was like, I know who you're talking about here. <laughs> you're talking about affiliate <laughs> sites, obviously. And so you didn't talk about that one in the Niche Pursuit podcast. Did you have time to even look at it? Or did you think about it? Or did you do any work on this? Yeah, a little bit. So when you look at the guidelines, What's interesting is they have little icons next to when they define things. Mm -hmm. And so you have expertise and then the experience and and kind of what's the difference between those two things. What's interesting is on expertise, there's a little graduation hat. The expertise would be your degrees. It's the education that you put in or or that kind of work that you put in to understand a particular thing. But then with the experience, it's time. It's the amount of time that you put in and your personal experience with something and and being involved in it are kind of like maybe the two differences between them. But what's in, I think an important concept to think about this though is what can a bot go in and see? Especially mm-hmm. in light of what we were just talking about. If they were using AI, this is something that you could use for AI. You could actually ask like chat GPT, for example, does this person have experience? Is there experience involved in this? And, and AI could do that. But I doubt they're doing that because it's expensive. And exactly. also, yeah. I think you can do, you can get an approximate using kind of what we were just talking about with like the BM25, where you're looking for specific terms. And essentially you're looking for contextual terms that you would expect to see that meet that expert, that experience category. So there could be terms about length of time, personal experience, what they're involved in. And they could probably then have a whole group of terms. And those are the terms they're expecting to see to tick the box for experience. Same thing with the expertise. I think they could do the exact same way. You could do it with AI. But you could also do it much cheaper when somebody's talking about the degrees they have, where they worked, that kind of background kind of stuff. And it would give them those kind of things. So I think with experience and expertise, they are probably doing a contextual term. People hate the term LSI, but that kind of an idea that you could have terms that they're looking for, scrape for those in a very basic Python fashion, and then tick the box if there are enough of the expected terms. And I think that's probably how they're going after it. The way I see it is like, for example, you'd want words like, oh, when I tested this or during my trial of the product or like things like that, like little hints and parts of sentences that would hint that you have touched the product or seen it or like done something with it. Basically, I think that is 100% correct. And it makes perfect sense, too, because they're not going to take the time to be like, is this a real review? Or did this person actually give this personal review? But they could look for those types of terms. When we blah, 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 or when I blah, 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 I thought this, or we thought that. So those kind of terms where it's kind of giving the idea of that this is a, a firsthand thing. And then I think the other part of that also is duplicate content. Is this review the same review they've seen on hundreds of other websites because it's just the boilerplate review? Or is this actually those types of, I did this, we did that kind of types of terms. So I think they could probably get into that type of evaluation quite quickly uh, without spending a lot of money. And it would get to their desired goal of there's a better chance that this is an actual review that somebody has that firsthand experience with that particular product or that service. Okay. So when you talk about duplicate content, do you mean like 
basically they're looking for new information about the product. Let's say everyone has reviewed the same iPhone, for example, like everyone's going to say like, oh, it has a screen that's this bright and this and this. And if you repeat that same thing, maybe they're looking for something that nobody else has said yet or something that comes from having tested it, something like this, right? Yeah, I think so. You could say like the screen is so big, but you could also say like, I found it too big. Yeah. Too big. Yeah. It was yeah. too big to hold, or I didn't like how the thing, or it was too small or, or that kind of thing. So it's one thing to give the specs, which everybody's going to give, but then once you kind of elaborate on that and get into terms that could be easily identified as a personal experience type term. So would you say that, I mean, it's like if I was, if an affiliate was like, oh, how do I implement this on my site? My answer to them would be try to be a little smart and sneaky. So for example, let's say you don't have a hands-on with that iPhone, but you want to review it. What I would probably do is do things, oh, let's compare the weight compared to the weight last time and try to come up with a unique fact of what is the weight different? Oh, it's 15 grams lighter than the one last time or something like this. And so you'll be able to kind of like give some originality mixed with the vocabulary. Is that the kind of advice you give to an affiliate that doesn't always have the opportunity to touch the product? Well, sure, because in that situation, you can talk about the weight, but then you can also talk about how it feels. And how it feels is a personal... To me, it felt very light. It weighed this much, but to me, it actually felt very heavy. That's then giving that language that would indicate that this is a a hands-on personal experience. Okay, cool. I wanted to talk quickly about an example, so I'll put you some links in the notes on the site that I've talked a lot about on the podcast, so you might not know it, but auditors definitely know about it. It's called The Hoops Geek. They review basketball shoes, and what they do is they actually summarize YouTube reviews for the shoes. So they don't get the shoes themselves, but they have a guy watching videos and putting a quantitative, quantitative scoring on each shoe. So they'd be like, like the robustness, the, the weight, the everything, etc. And they'd wait, they watch it video and they'd show the video on the site and they'd be like, oh, based on this video, the score for robustness is eight and the light, like the weight is seven, etc., etc." Would you say that is a way to kind of like bring experience kind of level to your site? Because you essentially create original insights from things that were YouTube videos. Yeah, I was actually just thinking too, when you're talking about the iPhone, you could do a review based on what you saw in a commercial. There's nothing that says the review has to be that you purchase the item and it's sitting in front of you. You can still observe something and give your review on it. So I think that'd be totally fine to do it that way, the hoop site. I agree. And I think you can also talk about experience in the sense of like, as a user of this product category for a long time, I'm used to this and this product doesn't have this and this and this. And you could probably bring experience without actually touching the product or something. So, you know, I'm trying to find ways for people to actually bring, get the right level of copy on their site when I think they should touch some of the products, but also we know it's not always physically possible to do that, especially if you're like in exotic locations that you know about that and so Mm -hmm. on. It's not always easy to do that. So I think that's one of the things. Anything else you want to say about experience before we jump onto expertise? No, I think that covers the experience part. So then let's jump onto expertise. And what Google says is consider the extent to which the content creator has the necessary knowledge or skill uh, for the topic. Different topics require different levels on types of expertise to be trustworthy. For example, which would you trust more? A home electrical uh, rewiring advice from a skilled electrician or from an antiques home enthusiast who has no knowledge of electrical wiring? I'd probably pick the first one. And that's where I think, <laughs> that's where I think you diverge a, a little bit from what Google says. Because essentially what Google says is like, um, they actually, when they go, you go further in the guidelines, they say what the page and the content creators say about themselves, what other sites say about the content creator of the site, and what the page shows about expertise, such as people doing the action they're talking about on video or comments by other people that would point out their lack of expertise or their expertise that they actually have, etc. Whereas on the Niche Pursuit podcast, you're like, well, none of this matters. It's just about showing there's a real person behind the page, basically. So like that was essentially, you get the question, like, how do you do that bridge, basically? Well, because like on that second point, they're like, what other people on other sites are saying about you? There's no chance Google's leaving your site, going to see what another site says about you and then coming back and ranking for it. There's just no chance they're they're doing that. The other thing, too, is that they're not going to make any value judgments. What's better, a degree from Stanford or a degree from MIT? Don't you think what matters is like the degree itself? Maybe they don't make a judgment value between two degrees, but maybe they value someone who has a degree over someone who doesn't. That could be, but what's more important, I just got out of school from Penn State or I've got 30 years experience. You know, like yeah, in the, in but industry, I think that's why they added experience. I think experience, but I mean, they, they realize like, that in that, in that case, know? though, like, but that 30 years, though, isn't just the experience of it, but that is actually my expertise. I've been a woodworker for 30 years. You just came out of school and you got a degree in woodworking. You want to go to the person that's got the 30 years experience, not the kid 
right out of school. But how are they going to know that? that? That's not anything that they're not going to get into, I think, and try to weigh those types of things. But what they can see in any of those situations is that somebody's actually written this stuff. You know, that there is a human that's there. And then this is where I'd advocate using person schema. And then within mm-hmm. the person schema, doing your same as. And your same as would then go out to those places that demonstrate your degrees, your certificates, your profiles on things that would then demonstrate that, that you're somebody that has actually done these things. I think that's as far as they would go. The humans might go farther, but I don't think the bot is going to go any farther than that. I think yeah. what you have to establish is that it's, a, that it's a person. And I think it's a good time to talk about what the guidelines are and what the tech of Google is, because the guidelines are here for human writers, for people who actually later on check the search results and then just give feedback so that then they can build factors for the algorithm. But these are not factors for the algorithms. They are just a way you teach a human to review a page. And the technicality of how you do things when you program things is often quite different. And you're looking at different things and different factors than what you would explain to a human and how to do this to essentially try to get to the same result most of the time. Let's just say that like they're, they're, they're willing to be wrong a small percentage. No, that's, that's correct. I mean, these, these are for a human. So the results exist and the idea is that they've got these guidelines and they want the humans to go in and check the results against those things. But that means they're expecting to get there. You know, mm-hmm. they're expecting to get to that point, but they're obviously not doing it in the same way. So they have to be doing it in a way that a bot would be able to do it as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And so in this case, I think they would have identified things. I think they feel pretty confident that if it's a human, you know, they, and it has those things going on, they can identify that. And they're going to feel pretty good that they are probably at least meet a minimum standard of what you would need in, yeah. to, to be considered uh, to have the expertise to talk about what you're talking about. Yeah, actually to go on, you know, you were talking about experience versus expertise. And actually there is a section about that in the quality guidelines, actually. They talk about that. I think it's quite interesting that they added experience because they realized that expertise was just not enough. You could be an expert without the degree, for example, as you said, right? Just with the experience. And that's why they said that. And so what they say is uh, YMYL pages can serve different purposes and serve require high expertise for trustworthy content. Personal experience shared on YMYL topic can have high EEAT, if trustworthy, safe and consistent with expert consensus. And that one is very important, I believe. Some YMYL information and advice must come from experts. For example, accounting advice. Probably you'd want an accountant to tell you just the, the experience of some guy who got audited by the, the tax system or something. But like for many other things, like for weight loss or whatever, like you could say like someone who actually went through it might have more experience than a nutritionist is not in very good shape themselves, you know, which happens. And I think Google has added that nuance by adding the experience to EAT. Like that's why they had, they had the, they need the extra E. And I think you can have either experience or expertise on your page and do well. You don't necessarily need to hit both. Would you agree? Totally. And that's also why when they've re really like define these things too, in adding the experience, they've also shifted experience, expertise, and authoritativeness to kind of secondary to that idea of trust. So, so you don't need to hit it all. It's hitting as much as you can, especially within those two things. And, and there's obvious overlap between them. And I think they're willing to accept that, that somebody might have a lot of this, but not a lot of that. And that's okay if they're trustworthy. Yeah, but I think it's an important topic because what it means is that when you're building a page, probably is, let's say, EEAT sensitive. So probably YMYL, as they would call it, you'd probably want to pick which direction you're going, right? The experience or the expertise. Mm-hmm. So let's say you want to do a page on the keto diet, for example. How do I decide? Do I want a doctor to write this or do I want someone who's been on the keto diet for 10 years to write this? And does it matter? I don't, I don't think it would. I don't think it would. And I don't think Google wants that to matter. It would just be that somebody has done it that either has that 10 years experience or has the, the degree. That's what I think the, the, okay, cool. the point would be. Another thing around this topic that we've seen a lot on websites is design elements that try to prove the expertise or the experience. This page has been doctor reviewed, a list of degrees in the auto bio, things like that. Do you think these matter on the page? Like, do you think that's something that the, that the bot might be looking at? Or do you think these are like a bunch of bullshit? I would do anything I can to make it as easy as possible for a bot to, to come to a conclusion. And so I would have those terms on the page if I could. 
I think they're probably silly, but I, I would probably do it. I would tend to agree with you. And I think also in general, it tends to increase the trust from the user. It can have like some little passive effects, like people are more likely to link to you or people are more likely to share your That's page. Right. Or, and these things might lead to higher rankings down the line, basically. There's also the fact-checked. Like a lot of websites are now fact-checked, you know, they get this little check mark at the end and like some guy fact-checked the article or something. Would you add these to your site as well? Like, would you do as much as you can of this? When you're on a website, like what would you be looking to add in terms of like, trust design elements that would convey expertise or experience. Yeah, I think it would be listing the degrees you have, awards you have, certifications, those types of things, because all of those can go into the same as area for like yeah. a particular person, the person that's, that's writing it. So, And while there are certain things you're allowed to mark up if they don't exist on the page, the general rule is that you have to have it on the page to mark it up. Because mm-hmm. these are things, I wouldn't just have it on the page, by the way. I think it's also critical to have it in schema. I think you're mm-hmm. taking a huge risk by having this kind of stuff and then not also then having, say, person schema to say who this person is and, and these things. So I think it's more important even probably to put into the schema than actually have it on the page. But anything that I could get on there, I would because I think it only helps you in the long run. Okay, cool. Makes sense. So go ahead and add your fact-checked and everything things on your articles. is going to help you. Another thing that a lot I've seen a lot of sites that kind of like have to do with YMYL do is, I'll be honest, I've seen a lot of like sites essentially try to get cheap EAT on their site. Let's just say that. And go and hire doctors in the Philippines or something like this and just put them like as many as they can on their about page, right? As a way to demonstrate expertise and kind of like associate the names of these people who might be listed on, you know, hospital boards and things like that in the Philippines with their website. Do you think that is something that would be helpful as well? Again, I don't think it's having the person with the degree or not. I think it's just having the person person. is is really the, the key. It's not going to, this person doesn't exist, creating a, a, a fake image and then going in and that's the problem. Again, I don't think Google is going to make a value judgment of the, this doctor is from the Philippines or this doctor is from Thailand or this doctor is from Bulgaria. I don't think any of that matters. This is a person. This is a doctor. Okay, cool. Makes sense. So essentially associate a right person and then think about adding these design elements. They, they can't hurt, basically. That's kind of the idea. I don't think it can hurt. Uh, yeah, it's like sometimes, you know, we do things because we don't know for sure. It's like even right. for me, like I just like I observe sites that rank and I have no idea if that's helping or not. But what I know is they're ranking and they have it. <laughs> Therefore, I'm probably going to do it. Well, which way do you want to hedge, hedge your bets? Do yeah. you want to be like, well, we spent all this time and all this money. We got all this rankings and I'm not going to take 10 minutes to do a few of these things because I don't think. I'm, all right. Good for you. You don't have to. You don't have to do it all, but now I yeah, think you're exposing yourself to more risk. I agree. Anything on expertise that we didn't talk about? I think we talked about most things that you mentioned. I think so, so I think yeah. those are good. Let's talk about authority. So what Google says, authoritativeness, consider the extent to which the content creator of the website is known as the go-to source for the topic. While most topics do not have one official authoritative website or content creator, when they do, the website or content creator is often among the most reliable, trustworthy sources. For example, local business profile page Social media may be authoritative and trusted source on what is on sale now. The official government page for getting a passport is the unique official authoritative source to passport renewal. So that is Google's mm-hmm. explanation of what is authority. And what you said on Niche Pursuit is it's about the site's authority, not the person's authority. And you said, have you covered the topic? Have you fully, basically you talked about topical relevancy, right? Making sure that you hit most of your subtopics. And you also mentioned about making sure to cover topics that might be too difficult for you to rank for, but if every other site essentially mentioned, like has that page, you probably should have it. How do you link these two basically? Because they talk about being the go-to source for the topic. Do you think that you achieve that through this topical authority basically? Is that what you mean? 100%. If your website answers one question, it's not the go-to source for a topic at all. To be the go-to source for a topic, you have to answer all the questions. You have to have that topical coverage. Otherwise, you're not the go-to source. You're the go-to source for one thing. One question of this topic. So to be the go-to source for a topic, you have to cover that topic totality. And that's what I think is is a big factor here. The other thing that you can look to tag something as the go-to source is UGC. People are going to be commenting. People are going to be asking questions. So in addition to covering the topic, having that UGC, I think would be also a very strong indicator here for authoritativeness. Interesting, because a lot of sites have been removing comments, including us. We've removed comments on our site, frankly, because a lot of them were were kind of bullshit and questions were bad. And it was just a lot of work to do. And I know a lot of big sites have removed comments as well. Do you think that is a mistake? All through the webmaster guidelines and through this kind of stuff, Google talks about how much they love comments. They desperately love them. Yeah, Um, that's true. And so... 
and, and it's not just in one document either that they talk about. It's, it's in multiple documents how much they absolutely love it. So I can see that as, a, as an indicator. If this is a go-to source, people are going to ask that go-to source questions, right? They're going to trust. Yeah. They're going to believe that this is an authority. And because they believe it's an authority, they're going to ask the authority questions. And, and a way and an indicator for them to see that would be that there are comments on this. The other thing that I love about comments as well is, though, let's say you get into this game and you realize we need 1,500 words on this page or whatever it might be. And you start ranking and doing pretty well. And maybe you get to page one and that's great. As you have comments, you're slowly but surely adding content to this page. And those comments are about the topic, then you're adding term frequency, you're adding keyword rich content, and you can also respond in the same way. And then slowly over time, that 1,500 or 2,000 word article turns into 7,000 words. And the thing is that raises the bar to entry for anybody to come at you because they can't just instantly write a 7,000 word article and beat you because you've got time on your side, you've got this slow incremental build, and you're there at the site. So I love comments for that reason. It allows you to slowly build out, stay relevant, continue to post new content, and it's coming from the outside, which is even better. And so for ranking purposes, I think it's great. And then also for uh, e-purposes, I think it's really great as well. I want to challenge that a bit in the sense that you're also an advocate of like optimizing your pages, making sure you have like certain amount of keywords in there, etc. Don't you think you essentially lose the control of your page optimization when you open up the comment section? One, you can moderate them, and two, you're allowed to respond. And I think so. You, you respond with optimized responses for your keywords. You should. Is that is you absolutely? Yeah. Should. Is that how you do it? Okay. Hundred percent. That gives you a perfect opportunity to get it on there. Let's be a bit cheeky here. Let's imagine that I'm a nobody. Uh, I don't have much traffic. Would you rather write a 3,000 word article about a topic because you saw your competition has 3,000 words? Would you rather write a concise article of like, let's say a 1,500 words? I can probably say all the information anyway. You know, half of the SEO content is fluff anyway. And then just fake the comment section below. Which one would you pick? I would probably start with the larger article first because that's a little bit easier to control. But then as you're going, then I would build out that fake UGC. Okay. As, as you want to grow it. Okay. Now I've, I've sparked a, a new trend in SEO. <laughs> people are going to, are going to just game the comments. I don't think this is, I don't think this is a new trend. I am surprised though that people turn off comments. One other note though, make sure that whatever you're using to create the comments can actually be read by Google. There are some mm. things that, um, discuss it's, it's not so good, for example, right? Exactly right. It puts it into like JavaScript and it can't be seen. Mm-hmm. So that's a complete waste of time. I think in my mind, that's a complete waste of time. And you need to make it easy to crawl. It might be crawlable, like you read, oh, Google can crawl JavaScript, etc. But it costs a lot more resources and you have to do your crawl budget. So it's like, make sure that it can be read in each channel. It's easier, basically. Always make it easy. Another challenge I have for you is that you essentially say, make sure you have answered all the questions. Whereas Google says, you're the known and go-to source for the topic. I don't think they're necessarily the same, right? If I publish a new site tomorrow with a thousand pages that answers all the questions, I'm not necessarily the go-to resource for the topic. So do you think that's another technical limitation by Google and that's just their proxy for trying to answer that query? No, it's a matter of crawling. But if you were to launch a thousand pages today mm-hmm. and then you were to launch or you to launch one page for a thousand days, the thousand page one that launches at once is going to perform a lot better, a lot faster. The content exists. The content Yeah, is yeah there. true. I mean, you just have more keywords you're likely to rank for, et cetera. Okay. I mean, that's fine. I could also think that it's like, uh, it's not always easy to say who is the go-to authority, especially on topics that don't necessarily have consensus. I think it's a tricky one. For mm-hmm. example, what's the best way to surf, right? I'm sure there's like different ways of doing this. And it's I'm like, sure there, yeah, it's hard to tell to, like yeah. who is the go-to authority. Is the Hawaiian guy who's like following the ancestral technique or is it the cool guy from Croatia that like came up with another way of doing it? And so I think uh, maybe that that's just a proxy as well. Okay, cool. Anything else on authority? No, I think those are the big things. Cool. Let's talk about trust, which, uh, as you said earlier, is kind of like the overarching one. So like Google, when they explain E80 now, they put basically all the other ones as like a triangle and trust like bang up in the middle. And they're like, if you don't have trust, it doesn't matter. All the rest doesn't matter. What they say exactly is actually trust is the most important member of E80 family because untrustworthy pages have low E80, no matter how experienced, expert or authoritative they may seem. For example, a financial scam is untrustworthy, even if the content creator is a highly experienced and expert scammer who is considered the go-to on running scams. So if you don't have trust, the rest doesn't matter, basically. And so do you want to run us back to what you said on niche process on like how you should achieve that, basically? In the guidelines, they actually make this pretty clear. The finding who is responsible for the website and the content. Mm-hmm. And it says that every page belongs to a website and it should be clear who is responsible for the website and who created the content. That's what trust is right there is, is figuring out who is responsible for this stuff. And so that comes down to who is responsible for the website, the company behind it, 
And then who wrote it? Who's that actual person that put that out there? And they need to know that on each piece of content that you put out. And so that's where you need to make it as clear as possible that you're real. There is a company behind this uh, enterprise that, that that's responsible for this website. And then there's a person that actually created this content. And um, I think those two things are, are, are hugely important. And that's where the, the trust threshold hits uh, for, yeah. for that particular thing. And if they don't know who, when the first medic update happened and Dr. Axe mm-hmm. got slammed, I went and looked at the site. And when you look at the site, there's this very attractive man holding up, you know, whatever he's holding up. And he's like, you know, waving and thumbs upping and you should trust me. And as a human, I could look at this and be like, oh, this is pretty legit. This is a very nice looking website. That's a, appears to be a doctor. But then as I was clicking through, I realized I have no idea who Dr. Axe is other than this photo. That's it. And the dude claiming to be Dr. Axe. And I have no idea who owns this website. And at the time, it was owned by something like Greenleaf or something Leaf. I realized it took about two, three clicks to get out of the website to find out who actually owned it. And then I was like, well, this makes a lot of sense to me. Even though as a human, I can come and see that this is a legitimate website and this advice looks fine. doesn't look anything out there or anything like that. But I don't know who is writing this and I don't know who owns this. And, and you can see how that would immediately fail on the trust factor. And especially now that Google's making it very obvious that this is the most important thing. This is what you need to make as clear as possible. So on the Niche Posted podcast, you mentioned you want contact details with unique street address, matching phone number. Yeah. And multiple email addresses. And your example was like, oh, you probably want like an ads at, let's say, Authority Hacker, like a support at Authority Hacker, and then maybe sales at Authority Hacker, et cetera. Just list a bunch of stuff to show that you have a bunch of department and look official, basically. I think that was your explainer, right? That's right. As much as, as you can do, as much as you can get on there, that's what you should do. Within the, the guidelines, it also talks about within that contact info that customer service is extremely important, especially if you're handling money. Or there's money involved. And so if you're running affiliates, I, I hate to break this to you, but money is involved and you need to see yourself at the highest standard. So the highest critique that's going to happen is going to happen on your site. I'm just selling light bulbs. Who cares? But there's still money involved in here. And so it's going to go under a heightened level of, of scrutiny and you need to be as legitimate as you can be present that because you know, Google can't look at your site and be like, oh, this is a great looking site. Look at this content. You know, look at all this. Uh, look at all this stuff over here. This is great. It's not going to evaluate it that way. It's going to evaluate who owns this website and who wrote this content. And, and if you can't make that clear, you're really putting yourself in danger. Yeah. So you actually, let's imagine like I'm an affiliate guy. I got hit by an update and I don't have contact details on my site. What do I do? Do I put the address of my bedroom in my uh, parents' basement? Or how does it work? Like, how do you actually practically go for that? Do you have services you recommend? Or See, this is, this is hilarious to me. If you are running an affiliate site, you know you're running a business, right? <laughs> but I think the vast majority of people don't. I know. I, you mean, know what I mean, we have a registered <laughs> business, but I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> they think like, well, this is just a website. No, if you're taking money, that's called a business, you know, and you're supposed to run it like a business. So you should have a business address. And most businesses have figured out, like, let's say you run your business from home. That's totally fine. A lot of people do. And they probably don't want to have their home address on things. They've figured out a business address. That's what you need to do. The part that becomes tricky is we're running a business address and, and maybe a, a local phone number. So maybe that costs 50 bucks a month or something like that. And you're like, I'm only making $10 a month in affiliate commissions. I can see why that would be difficult. But that I think is also Google's point. If the idea is like if, real you businesses. if you can't get to the, right. If you can't get to the level where you're a legitimate business, why should you be in the, in the index? We use a service called Companies Made Simple in the UK, actually. So they can do all of that for you, actually. We have a business address in London. We have a, I have a mailbox. We have a phone number. And as you said, like what was important was to have a unique street address. And when you said that, it was like the suites. You said, like make sure you have a unique suite number or something like this. And then you essentially have a matching phone number. So don't have a phone number that's 500 kilometers away or something like this. <laughs> make sure yeah. it actually matches. And, and also like a unique phone number for that particular entity. Because uh, if yeah. you have a unique number, then you can do like a GMB you can register all this. Like it actually is a thing that it is, it's its own entity at that point. Do you think a mobile number is fair? Cause it's a lot easier for people to yeah, just yeah, go, no problem. get a SIM card, right? Yeah. I, okay, I don't cool. think there's any issue with that at all. Exactly. Cause then you don't have to match it geographically, you know? Yeah, I would, you know, because that's easy to do as well. If you're registered in a particular area, you can get local numbers. That's not too tricky. So that's actually not a problem at all. In the, at least in the U S I mean, in UK, it's quite easy too. You also mentioned that people should have an about the company page and about the team page. Can you just tell us a bit more about mm-hmm. why and what's on there 
and maybe tell us like an example or something like this? That actually probably falls under the authoritativeness. It's in the guidelines, what they say about themselves. Look, and they actually say, look for the About Us page. That is one of the, one of the things. So is, is the About the Company page the About page? Is it the same page? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I personally like it where you can say like, okay, this is the about the the company page and you discuss, you know, when the company was founded and, and you know, your core values and, and why the company exists, et cetera. And then you've got like that team page and that's the humans. And that gives you an opportunity to get all of your humans on one page and then you can have links to their bio pages, their personal author bio pages is how I, I would set it up. Some people do combine those into one. So the, the top part talks about the company and the bottom part talks about the humans mm -hmm. and that's fine. I do find it a little bit easier. I do like the idea of having the, that about us and the meet the team as separate things. Cause that shows, I think it's a, that's two boxes to check as the bot comes through rather than just one and hoping that they understand that this is about the company and about the, the people involved as well. So that's why I like two different things. And that's how I would approach it. One thing that I've noticed a lot of bigger publications tend to have as well is they tend to feature much more prominently the editorial guidelines. Like they tend to like, oh, how they review products or things like that. And it's like, it's one of the things that I've actually been teaching in the Autorized System is to create some kind of like how we review product, how we select the recommended product type page that essentially runs people through your thought process when you pick something you're going to recommend for people and essentially what your values are, what you stand for and what you're looking at when you pick something. Is that something that you've seen or that you would recommend people do? That seems like great information for the like the about us, the about the company page for sure. I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I don't recall anything that would match up to that. In, in the guidelines, no, but absolutely not. It's more like it's something I've seen, I've observed on in like large uh, corporations that rank for big affiliate keywords. I've observed that quite often in the meta area, you know, where the date is going to be the author, etc. Yeah, they will yeah. have a new link that says like editorial, like editorial transparency or something like this. And they'll have dedicated pages for these kind of things. So it's like, it's just a, it's not about the guidelines, it's about what I've observed really. Yeah, I like that. Again, I think that falls into the, that makes sense. It makes sense to have that. I would totally do it. I think that gives you great content for that page or even a separate page. I'm like, this is what we do. And you have a whole editorial guidelines page. I think that's totally fine. I would do it. There's like one passage that I got in the guidelines that I wanted to talk to you about as well. That is about essentially untrustworthy pages. It says a web page that claims to offer independent review or share all information about a product, but is in fact created to make money for the owner of the website without attempting to help the user is essentially considered having no trust. Like that's basically what they say. Do you think they're talking about affiliate sites here? And how do you make sure you don't fall into that pitfall if that is the case? I would think that that's where like it claims to offer an independent review, but there it really isn't. So in my mind, that might be duplicate content. They've used mm. the review of somebody else. The information they're sharing about the project is, product is information that exists on the web and is easy to find and access. And so it's not necessarily unique to the site. That would be my guess as to what they might be pushing for there. Because otherwise, I wouldn't know how you would be able to say, like, this review isn't independent. And also, how do you say it as a robot? It's like maybe as exactly, a human, exactly. you can get that feeling like you're like, oh yeah, I hate this. Pro He's recommending a terrible product because they're paying high commissions. You know, that's a good point. Like it's something that you know is a terrible product. And they're like, this is 10 stars and this is what you're yeah. against. How the algorithm actually... goes, you know. But that's the thing. And it's, it's, it's an interesting point because it's like, it's one of these things where it might be more wishful thinking and maybe some stuff that they want to capture so that one day, maybe when they have more, uh, more advanced ways to analyze the information and they can process that level of information at that scale. Because I think that one thing that we need to say as well is like a lot of the things we, that are talked about in the guidelines, it's possible technically to analyze as a robot on like a page, but then analyzing the entire internet at that level of depth costs an incredible amount of electricity. And also it needs just the physical computers to exist to process that information. And I think seeing how often chat GPT goes down shows the hardware limitations that we're still facing today, even with multi-billion dollar companies. So it's not because it's technically possible with one page and that it, we could do it, that Google is necessarily doing it. Would you agree with that as well? Because I think that's a big uh, misconception in the SEO world. Like the scale, yeah, the scale is something people don't really think about. And also the costs, it's like, how much better do Google search results get for like a cost of hundreds of millions of dollars of, of CPUs and uh, electricity, basically? And I can even tell you on a personal level, like with, with Page Optimizer Pro, if we were only doing one website on the internet, we would 
have no problems. But it's like people are like, oh, you know, your tool can't crawl my site, and you go, and the site's code is absolute garbage or <laughs> this weird new fancy thing. And they're like, well, you know, we're indexed. Google can crawl it. I was like, Google is worth trillions. We're not quite there yet. But then when you think like even at Google's level, they're not quite there yet. You know, they can't get through the entire web. They can't get through. They still struggle with JavaScript. There's all that. So when you kind of take it, if you're on this scale, it's, it's, it's pretty easy. As soon as you get out to the entire World Wide Web, you're talking about an incredible scale. Again, need to, they need to do that as cheaply as they can. I think we've really become immune to when you type in a keyword and you hit enter and you instantly have results and they're relevant. That's unreal that that can exist. That's insane to me that that exists. And I think we take it completely for granted just because it just, that's how it works. Why wouldn't it work that way? But the amount of processing that takes to do it at, at scale that fast is absurd. But you know, they have to do it as cheaply as they can. They must because they can't just waste money on it. And not only that, but I think just, I think physical servers existing enough, having enough physical CPUs processing all of this yeah. in real time, et cetera, it's not very simple, especially given, for example, energy costs is there. It's like Google's paying the electricity right. a lot more today than they are like two years ago, for example. And so like when they're yeah, making changes sure. to the algorithm and it requires reprocessing the entire index. They probably think twice about it because they're looking at millions of dollars of, of bills. I mean, I'm, I know they use renewables, they do all of that, et cetera, but it costs money to build these things as well, et cetera. So I think the SEO world quite often lacks a technical understanding of like how challenging doing things that are possible at small scale is on a large scale. And that's why we talk about what the guidelines say and then what actually happens when a robot crawls your website and what can be done in a cost efficient way, essentially. And so that's the, the, and that's why there's a difference between what it says and what actually you should maybe look at on your website if you want to rank it. You talk about HTML sitemaps as well. I kind of raised an eyebrow when you say that one. Like you say, HTML sitemaps, are we back in, uh, in 2000 or something? But you say it helps crawl. And, uh, and I think you put it in the trust when you talk uh, about the niche process in the niche process podcast. Like how does that increase trust exactly? Well, it's the idea of Google getting to all your pages. The way that Google likes to discover pages is through a click. And that click can be on your own site. Everyone has indexing issues. And I think a way to alleviate that is through an HTML sitemap. And I've found that that's a sites that have had eat issues, getting that in there and getting more of their pages indexed really does seem to be a big benefit. So I would have that on there just to encourage the crawling to make sure like that about us page gets crawled, about the team page gets crawled, the your privacy policy pages get crawled, all that gives you the better chance of getting Google into those pages and, and getting the recognition for them. So it's kind of like a fail safe for technical issues, would you say? Like if your site has, yeah, totally. has like poor structure, has like your menu is like JavaScript or something and it's harder to crawl or something, then at least it can go to the HTML sitemap and find the pages and it, it finds it without difficulty. Would you say that's the rule here? That's right. For on that level, it makes sense because a lot of these kind of sites that have issues probably have technical depth as well. And therefore there could be, there could be issues here. So I can see why, where it comes from. Okay. Anything that I did not ask you on trust that you would have asked yourself if you were doing that interview? No, no. I think that hits that one as well. <laughs> okay. you're, you're doing a great job. Gail. Wow. I feel you're so good now. <laughs> now you're happy. I'm not against you talking at China SEO. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> now I would be concerned. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Okay. I'm sure you've heard about that new tool that very few people have talked about called ChatGPT. And, uh, how do you think essentially ChatGPT? Yeah. What sure. is that? I don't know. You know, it's like never heard of it. How do you think that plays with EEAT? Because essentially Google came on record and saying, well, actually we don't care that much about AI content. We just care about punishing shit content now. They, they kind of like for a while, they were like, Oh, oh AI is automatically, automatically generated content. Therefore it's spam. And now. I think they've realized that they couldn't win that battle. So they were like, well, we're just going to go after bad content. But obviously that means AI is going to help create content. How does that affect all the EEAT stuff? I think what's going to happen is it's that's going to be the AI content's going to be treated the exact same way mm-hmm. as duplicate content is. And I think they're okay. going to approach it in the exact same way. Because like, let's say we all ask the same question. 50 websites ask chat GPT the same question. You're going to get, I think, relatively the same answer. And now you've got... 50 websites posting the exact same content, and that's where you're going to run into a lot of duplicate content, and Google will start to identify that and devalue it, which is, I think, I don't know, have you, have you seen the the fun sites that people put up with like 10,000 pages yeah. done through AI content? 
and they have that like, meteoric mm. rise and then that meteoric <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. I call it so, rank I mean, and It's like, oh my that's, God, this is amazing. It's yeah, rank we, and we, we, we cracked the code. You could do the exact same thing with spun content from 2012. It would do the, it might last a little longer actually, but it ends up doing the exact it same thing. It reminded me of Unique Article Wizard and all the times where we were posting spun articles yep. to get like hundreds of backlinks. I would rank yep. in four hours and then I would thank a month and a half later or something. Yep. And I think that's exactly how it's going to go with this. You know, if you just use pure AI content, I think what's going to happen is, is the exact same thing. One other thing that was interesting is I, I was just, somebody just sent me an article about a case study that was done. And I'm, I apologize to the people that did it. I didn't catch their name when I read it, but they were saying that um, they ran through five different tools, through five different detector tools. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is about Two weeks ago, I feel like we only had two detector tools. Now there's like, and now there are like five, six, seven, probably more than that. And so OpenAI like, released one uh, yesterday. It, like OpenAI made an official right. one yesterday. So yeah, here we go. It didn't take long. These are doing it. Then you got to figure. Fun fact: Google has been working on AI, you know, quite a quite a bit. So they're do you think they're going to detect AI content? Do you think they're going to detect AI content like duplicate? Yeah. Okay, but like, do you think they're going to do it because... I think it'll be like duplicate content. Yeah, because all the articles are the same, basically, like just kind of like spun. Yeah. It's basically a very smart spinner when you ask a basic question. And so like, I, that, get, I guess... That's gonna exactly what it is. Okay. So you think essentially through patterns yeah. of content, maybe not, it doesn't say the same words, etc., but the structure of the article is the same. It makes the same first point, the same second point, the same third point. And Google's going to be like, well, I've seen this I before. And they will essentially try to maybe catch you on the conceptual level and article structural level more than like on the word by word and like duplicate content will expand its definition. I think that's how they'll approach it. Okay, cool. So if you're running a content company today, do you invest in scaling AI content or using AI to scale your content? Or do you invest in really good human writers that will differentiate from AI? Like which way would you go? I think you can use the AI content to fast forward a lot of things, give you that rough draft give you the sections on the page that you need, the titles that you need, subheaders, that type of thing. I think you can and, and, and should use that, but you really do need that human editor. It has to have that human voice put into it uh, to make sure that um, you're going to keep stay, stay out of trouble. So I think it's a, a good way to fast forward a rough draft or a rough, rough, rough draft. But after that, then I think I'd want a human involved to, okay. um, to take care of things. We so are, a little bit of both. We agree on that, actually. Usually we do the early stages. On AI, usually like big mm-hmm. outline or something like this. And then after that, take over. And that is quite useful. I like that. Okay. Another thing that you didn't talk about in EAT, which uh, surprised me, is you only talked about on-page, but you didn't talk about links. I personally believe if EAT was a factor, a lot of it would be put in links from external websites that are harder to gain than from whatever you say about yourself on your site or things like that. I, I believe the phone number, etc., are very valuable and all your device is very valuable. But I also think that Links would, pay, would play a big part into it. And would you agree with that or would you disagree with that and why? I think they've already got it covered on the link side anyway, because there are links that are going to help you establish who you are, like citations, for example. And mm-hmm. I think you could easily say that th- those would be trust factor type links, right? You're explaining who you are, that you're a real thing. And so I think they definitely have an eat quality. But I would think this, they already have that covered maybe on the backlink side. They don't need to put it on the eat side, would be my guess. And that's all, that's just a guess, but that's kind of what I was thinking of. So you should cover those types of things, but I would kind of put that into the backlink category okay. more so than doing it for EAT, even though I think it has that same. It's more purpose. of a categorization thing than like a disagreement, would you say? That's right. That's right. Okay, cool. Makes sense. Because I personally believe that like if you get your site featured on the biggest sites in your niche, on all of that, et cetera, I mean, you gain the relevancy, but you also essentially confirm you're a real person, confirm you're an authority, do all these yep. things that EAT wants you to do. And I think it's the smart way for Google to kind of like give that to a third party rather than just have to pay for a lot of processing. I would recommend like proper PR campaigns, et cetera. For me, it's a good way to kind of like increase the trust in your website in general as well. But yeah. One last question, which is your tool, your on-page tool, Page Optimizer Pro, now has a feature about EEAT. Can you tell us how it works and what it does? Yeah, essentially, we've gone through the Raider guidelines. We pulled out a whole bunch of things that a bot can find because our bot can find them. And essentially what we do is we pull in the factors that you have on your page that we can find, but also the factors on your competitors. And we give you, hey, six of your competitors have this, you don't have it. And the idea is that maybe you should get it on your page. That's kind of the the basic idea because it isn't checking one box with EAT. It's checking as many as you can. And a lot of things we just covered, you know, in this talk, 
I think we'll get you where you need to go. But then we do have this where you can actually kind of double check, like, you know, do all your competitors have one particular thing that maybe you haven't done? And th- all these things usually take just a handful of minutes to do. I would do as many as you can to, again, just to, to tick enough boxes. Okay. So you're basically helping kind of like automate a lot of these checks against the competition. So you don't just have to check your website, but you also check everyone else that's against you. Yeah, because you might say like, okay, we've got an address, we've got a phone number, we're good. But maybe a bunch of your competitors in in that particular niche have other things. You know, like the guidelines talk about contact, for example, might change niche to niche. Some Mm -hmm. niches need more contact information, some niches need less. And so what we would be looking at, you could see what your competitors actually have uh, in terms of a lot of those contact information things and to make sure that, hey, you know what, we don't have this type of email address. Maybe we should get that on when, when your competitors do that kind of a thing. So we go through and show you what you have in terms of what we've identified that a bot can find and also then what your competitors have as well. And I think we might be the only tool that's got that. Yeah, I haven't heard about it. I can't say for certain, but... I've never seen it before. Like, it's the first time. I thought it was a good idea because it just can save you a lot of time, especially if you have clients, I think, for agencies. Like, you know, if you're managing a portfolio of sites, like a big portfolio of sites, it's not always easy to keep an eye on everything. And actually, you provided us with a coupon code so people, you can use Hacker 15 and you get 15% off on the monthly unlimited plan. Uh, So go and check it out if you want. Uh, That is Carl's tool. See, I I did the promo well. See, even though we're arch nemesis in uh, Chiang Mai SEO, I can still do your promo, you know? (laughs) (laughs) We can can find common ground. Exactly. That's what SEO is about. One other. Yeah, go ahead. It's coming together. I said one other small thing is that um, we actually give free credits now for EAT as well. So when people are on a trial plan, we actually have credits so they can try it. So they get five credits for EAT and five credits for Google's NLP. API as well, so everybody can kind of try those things out. Cool. Then, yeah, I'd say I'd say at least give it a shot. I saw you can put your site on the your URL on the site as well and get some results. So uh, go check it out. Any tip on optimizing your EEAT that we didn't talk about on this podcast that you'd recommend most people do? No, this was this was pretty good. I think as you mentioned in the beginning, it's it's great to go read the guidelines. Mm-hmm. They're 120 pages, and I would say the middle 60 pages is probably not worth reading. But the, the there's stuff on the top and the bottom that, that's definitely worth your time, and I would I would check that out. I think the the best way to read it is like read the um, the table of content and just read the section, then go back to the table yeah. of content and find what's interesting. Some stuff is kind of irrelevant for SEO. Some stuff's actually pretty useful. I checked it out a long time ago, and for this podcast, I got back. I spent a whole afternoon on it, you know, just rereading everything. But I've actually enjoyed it. I saw it's like it's. Not as dry as people would expect. There's a lot of examples, etc. So my recommendation, we put the links on the podcast show notes. So you can go on otoyahaka.com slash podcast and you'll find the link to the guidelines if you don't have it. And we'll link to the promo as well. And Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been fun as always. I hope you'll come back and I look forward to see your talk at Chiang Mai SEO. Thanks so much for having me. Always fun. Thanks. Thanks.